Good morning, good morning. I just told Scott I also love his dad joke style delivery. Never fails. It never fails. I love it. Um, anyone who was here last week, you might have left feeling one of two ways. Um, same thing for our church family in Stuttgart. Either you left feeling confident that you know that because you have faith in Jesus, you've built your life on that, um, and you understand that um, we can look at our lives and we can look at uh uh, what, how we have connected ourselves to Christ, we can dig into our journey of following Jesus, and we can see that he has been in the process of making changes in us from the inside out over the course of time. Um, because we all began that with this process of faith where we have belief in and we repented, we turned and we began following his ways which is um, assuming this, because we may have left feeling the possibility that um, I'm, I'm not so sure that things are right with me because of this statement that Jacob has on the screen for us, because a real faith, a real belief, and real repentance always is followed by real action. It's always followed by real change that's being expressed in our lives. And so that is assuming that you can look back on your life and you can unmistakably see where God's Spirit has been at work inside of you in different areas of your life, where God's Spirit is changing you and rearranging you. He's rewiring the way you think. Uh, and, and all of that is reassuring because, as we said last week, God's Spirit is given to us as a guarantee that we are in right standing with God, that he's actually there, present in our lives. Now, this week is going to be a little bit similar to last week, but it's going to be very different in a very, very significant way. Because while some of us here left last week feeling, yes, I feel very reassured because I've placed my faith in Jesus and his finished work upon the cross, and I have faith in him, and I've repented, I'm following him. But at some point, for many of us this week, we went home, and life happened after we got home. Y'all know what I mean. It means that um, what we experienced last week, maybe that reassurance, now maybe it is gone. Because, you know, what we experienced, we, we ended up now with life happening to us. We're like, Harley, what 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 gives? Because I left here feeling reassured, and then when I got home and life began to happen, um, I don't feel so reassured anymore. I don't feel so confident anymore because life happened. I responded. I don't, you know, I, I understand that when I fall, now I don't feel so connected, so reassured that everything is okay with me between me and God. So this morning, we have a desire to kind of give you some dirt, to, to give you all the details, all the dirt on this topic of this real fear that we can experience, because so often 
we might have this feeling that I'm okay with God now, but I'm not sure about the future because what happens if I suddenly get there and I find out I've been kicked out? What happens if I'm okay with God right now, but eventually in the future, something goes so wrong that I get booted out? What happens with that? What how do I deal with it? How can I, because that doesn't feel very reassuring to me. What happens if I, if, if I lose what I found in following Jesus? And here's the problem, because there are actually, and I, and, and I understand that confusion, because there, there are churches who teach that, who teach that you can be okay with God, but, but, if you just do something specific, something wrong, something that's on that list, then you find yourself kicked out. You might be okay today, but you might not be okay tomorrow. So here's what Jacob's going to put on the screen for me. What happens if you're actually in, can you lose it? After all this time, you know, you what what happened? And, and I'm not talking about people who thought they were in that weren't in. What about people who are in and then end up getting kicked out? Can you lose it? Is is there some kind of list that you draw from? Is there uh, 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 some kind of a list of things that if you do this, this one is a for sure ejection. You're out, you're called out, and, and you can't get back in. This one's a, a for sure. Is there some kind of uh, a, a, a list? Is there a number of times that you can fail? And, and like one time, maybe you get a mulligan, and maybe or maybe five times or six times, maybe seven times. What, what, what happens if it's like 490 times? Is that it, the 491st time, and you're out at that point? These are the things that can worry us, the things that can frustrate us. Because there are churches that actually teach that, that you can be in one day and out the next. There's got to be some dirt that we don't understand, some details about this that we're not aware of. What is the fine print so I don't have to wonder about that. So maybe I'll ask the question that many of us have wondered about. Many of us have been concerned about. The question, if I am legitimately in, then what gets me kicked out? What gets me out? What sends me out? How many times can I get away with something before I'm called out? Where's the line? Because hardly, listen, I, I, I don't want to cross it. So if I'm aware of it, maybe I can keep from crossing that line. Now, I can understand if there is confusion for you related to that. I can understand that. Um, that makes sense to me. Because... While there are places in, in the Bible that give us so much assurance, I know there's a handful of places that don't. A handful of places that can 
really confuse us on that point. So, if you want the dirt on this topic, well, that's going to be our topic this morning. Can I lose my salvation after I truly have it? That's what we're going to talk about today. For the last three weeks, um, we have uh, been looking at Ephesians. And during that last three weeks, um, we've been kind of working our way through. We're not going to go through the entire book. But this morning, um, I am going to pick up where about where we left off, which is Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verse 13 as we begin. And here's what it says in Ephesians 2.13. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is saying you used to be on the outside, but right now you are on the inside. But something has changed because you were on the outside. So something is different. Something's not the same anymore. Something is very different. Um, now, the purpose that Paul has in this section, uh, he has a purpose of trying to help them be confident and to be reassured, which is what we talked about last week, to be assured that they really are connected with Jesus. They're united with him. They're joined with him. They're connected to him. And Paul's reminding them, but you know, that wasn't always the case. He says, there was a time that you were not connected to him. He says, once you were actually far away from God, you weren't close to him at all, but now you have been brought near to him. Now you've brought, been brought near to him. Um, Paul is speaking to what we call Gentiles, which are, it's basically anyone who's not a Jew. Uh, uh, the town of Ephesus was full of Gentiles. And Typically, Gentiles were not connected historically with God at all, but now, through Jesus, they are. And Paul is addressing them, and he's saying, um, you are legitimately in. You are connected now to Jesus. And he's reminding them, here is how that connection works. And this is the only way the connection works. Paul reminds them, you are in through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the blood of God through the blood of Christ. You are in, and this should be very reassuring to them. He's saying you are in because of the substitutionary death. In other words, Jesus died in your place on the cross as your substitute. And honestly, that whole, that whole idea is repeated over and over and over again in the new covenant. It's repeated by uh, Peter, Paul, James, and Jesus, and, and I kind of feel like that should be a 70s rock band, Peter, Paul, James, and Jesus, and the New Covenants. That's where we find it throughout the New Covenant, and they repeat that often, that very same thing, the substitution of Jesus on the cross on your behalf. And once you begin to truly follow him, once you begin to be connected to him, you are now, according to what Paul, the words he's using, you are now an insider. You're in. And here is a critical thing. I want to land this morning on this, and we're going to keep talking about it, but I want this to sink in. 
once you're in, nothing, nothing changes that. Nothing changes that. We hear Jesus saying things like this. Listen to what Jesus said in John 10. He said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now just think about this for a moment. So let's say there's a hundred sheep in the pen. Let's say 500 sheep, maybe 5,000. Maybe there's 8.1 billion sheep in the pen. And if a hundred hear the shepherd's voice and follow the shepherd, those 100 sheep are his. Those 100 sheep belong to him because he, he's the shepherd. They hear his voice. They follow him. Now, notice what Jesus says that the shepherd gives to his sheep. Here's what he says in verse 28. He says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Which seems to me to be pretty clear, all right? So if you have wondered about this, this seems to be so clear. He gives them eternal life and they will never perish. So otherwise, if they could, if he could give them eternal life but yet, they, and, and when we use the word perish here, it's referring to an eternal separation from God. And so if he gives you this eternal life where you will never perish, never be separated from God, and then you get kicked out and you are separated from God, that means Jesus is a liar. And Jesus doesn't lie. So I want you to know, you can hold firm to that. And look what he says next. I love this. He doubles down and he says, not only, not only is it that you can't get kicked out, but listen to this. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. Not one single thing, living or a spiritual being, once you're in the hand of Jesus, not one thing at any point now or any point in the future will be able to take you out of the hand of Jesus. That's huge. And he goes on because he says, verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Wait a minute. I thought you just said Jesus' hand. And he says, Verse 30, and I and the Father are one. Wow. When I read that, it makes me so thankful that at a very specific point in my life, I heard the shepherd's voice and I responded and I began to follow him. I'm one of those sheep because I responded. I am so grateful for that to have received that gift that he's talking about, uh, to, have, to, to realize that I will never be separated eternally from God. I will never be taken out of his hand. No one can take me out. No spiritual force can take me out. I can never fail so badly that I even take myself 
out of his hand. That brings me assurance. That brings me confidence. That brings me security. Let me give you another example. In the very same letter we've been looking at this this month, um, in Ephesians, this is towards the end, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Remember, Paul says, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing, there's that word we love, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. And then I want to read something else to you. This is Paul writing to the believers in Rome. And I don't even, I'm not even going to comment on this. I just want to read this. Listen to the assurance that Paul gives us that once you're in, there's nothing that will take you out of the hand of God. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself, no one us a right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us, was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does does it mean I that he know? Oh, this is so big. Um, just pay attention to this. A- a- anything you've ever heard on TV or you've heard from other people that say that God always wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise, and he wants to give you abundance and everything in life, just pay attention to this. He says, doesn't mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity. In other words, it's going to happen. Or if you are persecuted or you're hungry, uh, we're not even guaranteed a meal. If you're hungry or if you're in danger or threatened with death. And then he says, oh, yeah, it's worse than a threat. As the scriptures say, for your sake, in other words, for the sake of Christ, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. And he says, if those bad things happen, does it mean he doesn't love us anymore, that he's kicked us out, that we're we're not in anymore? And he says, verse 37, no. Despite all these things, in other words, they're going to happen, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears uh, for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We could fill the entire time that we're talking today with Scripture after Scripture after Scripture out of the New Covenant that gives us assurance that once you're in the hand of God, you will never be taken out. But, this is a big but, there are a few places in Scripture that seem to contradict that. And those few places 
if we don't understand them, could give us a lot of heartache and a lot of worry. I want to give you an example of one of those today. We're going to be looking at the book, uh, the letter uh, written to the Hebrews, and I'm just going to take one of those selections. There's just a handful in Scripture, and this is one of them, but I want to talk about this one uh, as an example, really, of all of them. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, let me read this, and you'll understand what I'm talking about, why it feels like, as we read this, that we could get booted out. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance. By rejecting the Son of God, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up. Up to public shame. And with a scripture like that, it might make us sit back and say, wait a minute, Harley. I just thought you said nothing. No, nothing could take us out of the hands of God. Because as we read that, it might make you think, you know what? It looks like maybe I can lose that after all. So, is it possible that God can find you, but something go terribly wrong and you lose him? He found you, but something goes wrong and you lose him. Is it possible that after being enlightened, after being experiencing these things of heaven, after seeing God's spirit at work, after being around the word of God, is it possible to lose it? Now, that is why you hear us say over and over and over again, as we look at scripture, it is so important to understand the context of scripture. And I'm going to do my best, and Cole's doing his best in Stuttgart this morning, um, to help us understand the context of this passage. Knowing that context and understanding the audience and understanding the timing of this message and understanding uh, the, what is going on around this letter, it is so important for us to understand that in order to understand what Paul is saying in this letter. Or actually, we don't know that it's Paul what the writer is saying in this. You'll hear me do that often because I grew up being taught and assuming it's Paul. I think it's safer to say we don't know because we don't know. So if you hear me mess up, then it's just a mess up. So we know this. Paul, uh, there, <laughs> I'm going to do it several times, I promise. The writer is um, speaking to a group of people, okay? This is so important. He's not speaking to an individual. This, this letter was not written to Scott. This letter was not written to you guys, right? It, it, it's, it's a group, not a single person. And that is so important to understand. Um, this group of people 
they are experiencing persecution because they have been uh, attached to the name of Jesus. And so they are experiencing persecution. Now, like any group, this group is diverse, okay? It's a diverse group of people. One person doesn't look like everybody else. It's diverse. They're diverse in, in um, uh, largely, they're Hebrew people, but they are diverse as individuals, okay? This group is made up of a shepherd, and they began to follow him, Jesus, so we've got some folks who have been united to Jesus, but we also have some people inside of this group that we would call superficial believers. They kind of got caught up in the experience that was going on around them. And this detail is so important for us to understand what is being written here. The writer is describing a movement and as with any movement, these people experience that movement together. And he's unpacking some of these things that they have experienced as a group, as a collective group. Uh, they, they have tasted, they have enjoyed, they have witnessed, they saw firsthand. And remember, they're being persecuted. In fact, the timing of this is somewhere around A.D. 65, which means the persecution of Christians by the emperor Nero is at its peak. So there's heavy persecution going on. And because of that persecution, out of this group, some of the people are beginning to bail. They're beginning to walk away. They're beginning to say, oh, I'm out. And some of them have already said, hey, I'm out. And some of them are considering jumping out. And so Paul is addressing this whole group. So the, the writer. And so the writer is not just talking to a particular person. He's talking to everyone who has been a part and been around this movement. And here is why that detail matters so much. Jacob's going to put it on the screen. In every gathering, there are people who get caught up in the movement. They get caught up in the excitement of what's going on without truly experiencing conversion. Right? I mean, we've seen it. I mean, people get pumped up. They learn the songs. They might even pray a special prayer. They could even get baptized. They might go on a mission trip. They might also sign up and start serving. But when life hits them and things don't end the way they thought they were going to and, and things get tough and things happen, when the consequences of those past decisions catch up and we're having to pay for those right now, only then does it begin to be clear that for them that was a superficial experience. They just got caught up. They never truly experienced a deep personal embrace 
of Jesus Christ. Which is why, over time, their excitement begins to fade and life begins to be more routine as life continues to come at them and to, to, to beat them down, they eventually just fall away. It's kind of like that church camp culture. And listen, I have nothing against camps because I, I, I was a youth minister for 17 years. Camps and retreats and trips, they were a vital, and events, they were a vital part of the ministry that I had with students. But I understand the camp culture. You know, we've all seen it. Maybe, if you grew up around it at least, the energy, the power, the emotion. But then we get home and it all begins to subside, right? What was at the retreat or the camp is what is for me right now, but what happens when I get home, what was way back here becomes my what is. And it just goes back to normal. Maybe it was a great communicator. And maybe a student just kind of got caught up in that event. Maybe that conversion wasn't legitimate because over time, more than the excitement fading, it never thing about that just kind of evaporates as if it never was. And for the sake of clarity, the writer of Hebrews is referencing something that we have all seen. We've all seen that. We've all seen that superficial type of decision where there was never truly an experience of conversion, something that comes from faith and repentance. Instead, maybe they just got caught up in the excitement, the movement. This is so important. It is time and endurance and perseverance that ultimately tells the true story. But you probably caught something really important that Paul said, if you were listening closely when I read that verse, because not Paul, the writer. <laughs> um as I was preparing for this week, I just need to say, I never said Paul once. <laughs> so uh, you'll just have to believe me on that. But the writer of Hebrews, what he threw in this was this curveball. And Jacob's going to put it on the screen. It says, impossible to renew them to repentance. Now, if that's confusing for you, you're in good company because that's confusing for me. And we're in good company because the writer of Hebrews was completely confused by this as well. I mean, the writer is bewildered 
about what he is seeing going on. I mean, he is just beside himself bewildered. It's as if he's saying this. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You are telling me that you have been around this the whole time, and somehow you've experienced something where you can say that you believe that Jesus really did die on the cross, stone cold dead, and you believe that he really did rise again to new life, walked out of that tomb alive just like he said he would, and you believe that. And just like all the eyewitnesses have seen, and they told us they saw it, and we have talked to them and asked them ourselves, and you are telling me that you believe that really happened. He's bewildered. How is this to be? And Jacob's going to put this on the screen. How can you believe that, that Jesus really did die and, and walk out of that tomb alive, and yet turn your back on him and go back to your old way of life? How can you do that? How can you say that you have, you've been around this and, and you've, you say, yeah, you really believe he did that? but yet you turn your back on him and you go back to your old way of life. The, the author of Hebrews is declaring, what else is there left for me to say? What else is there? What, what other argument, what greater argument could I make? Would Jesus have to come back and go to the cross again, and walk out of the tomb again in order to convince you? What else is left? If you're telling me you really believe he did, what else is left? He's bewildered. He can't imagine. But yet, that's what's happening. In other words, he's saying, there is nothing left for me to say. There's no more arguments. There's, I, I, if you say you really believe he walked out of the tomb alive, I've got nothing else for you. I don't have another argument. Uh, there's, there's not another sacrifice that's out there. That was it. That was it. So the writer's kind of giving us the dirt. He's explaining that hearing the gospel, hearing the gospel is like a farmer who plants seeds in the dirt. This is what he goes on. This is what he says next in Hebrews. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to describe it. It's like a farmer who plants some seeds. He buys a field, plants some seeds in the dirt, and then he waits for it to rain. And after it rains, he looks to see what's going to grow. And if that soil only produces weeds and thorns after he's placed the seeds in the ground, 
But if it only produces weeds and thorns, he says, this field is no good. And he leaves the field, walks away from it, and lets it just go about its own destruction. You see, movements can gain a crowd. Movements can gain a following. It can gain attention. And some of those in a movement are true followers. But some are just simply caught up in the excitement. And it is time and endurance and perseverance that revealed the difference. This verse has confused many, many, many Christ followers since then. But the writer of Hebrews is simply describing this concept, and the concept says this, a faith that saves is a faith that endures to the end. A faith that saves is a faith that endures to the end. So these passages aren't teaching that you can lose your salvation. They teach that a saving faith always endures to the end. A saving faith endures despite what difficulties come into your life, despite what happens to you or around you, despite what uh, persecution may come your way. Now, I realize I may not have convinced you, and the writer of Hebrews, perhaps, maybe has not convinced you. So I, I, I want to take it a step further. When it comes to this, Jesus gives us a really clear picture. And I want to describe that for you. In fact, it's such a great story. I would encourage you to go and look it up and read it on your own. But Jesus gives us the dirt. And I think we can really, really count on this. He tells us a story about different types of soil, okay? Different types of soil. And he see, he says, in these soils, uh, different soils, um, some seeds were planted, okay? They were planted. One of those soils that Jesus describes, um, it looked really good. There was this top layer, a thin top layer of really good dirt. And the seed that was planted on that, it sprouts up really quick, seemingly like overnight. And it's like, oh, wow, there's something there. But when the sun comes out and the moisture is not quite right and the conditions become less than ideal, then that seed that was planted there, it the one that sprouted up, it sprouted up so quickly, it looked good, but then it begins to become withered and dried up. And it dried up because the roots couldn't grow down because, not because it wasn't the right type of seed planted, no, 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 because it wasn't the right type of soil. It was... It was bad dirt. 
It wasn't the right type. And with this parable, Jesus is describing saving faith. If it's not a saving faith, if it's not real, it doesn't last. The seed didn't last. You see, this is not the parable of the seeds. It's the parable of the soils. A saving faith is one that lasts in spite of the circumstances. See, something grew. This, that's what always confused me as a teenager. I'm like, but something grew. But nobody pulled me to the side and said, Harley, it's not the parable of the seeds. <laughs> it's a parable of the soils. It didn't last. Whatever was needing to sustain life wasn't there. It was bad soil. It withered. The plant withered. It withered because what was needed for life simply wasn't present. It was not around. And while on the surface that soil looked good and it looked right and it looked like it wouldn't see good, what, what on the surface looked great, we just didn't know, right? We couldn't see. And while the surface looked like it could support life, because after all, what we saw, it got a great start. But the soil couldn't support life. It didn't persevere. It didn't endure. It was missing the key ingredient. This will be on the screen. Jesus is pointing out the difference between a saving faith and a superficial faith. And it has nothing to do with the intensity of the emotions that we saw or that we experienced or that was present in the beginning. Nothing to do with that. It's not a feeling that one feels, but it has everything to do with lasting over time, with enduring, with persevering in spite of the circumstances. Listen to this. Faith that fades, no matter how exciting in the early days are, is not a saving faith. If you're truly convinced that Jesus really did die, and he really did walk out of the tomb alive, no circumstance, nothing on earth is going to dissuade you from following that Jesus. Because if a person can predict his own death and then pull it off, then what else can I say? There's nothing I can say to add to that. There's nothing I can do to talk you into that. What else is there? That's the best I've got. That Jesus died and he rose again. And according to Jesus, if you want proof, 
If you want proof that you're saved, that you're really connected, that you're really in, if you're looking for assurance that it's real, okay, this is tough to hear, but listen, real faith lasts. And I'm aware that when I say that statement, it seems to contradict everything that we said last week. But remember last week we were talking about assurance. And what we're talking about this week, you're saying, Harley, you know, listen, that doesn't sound very assuring to me. I feel like I'm getting mixed messages. I mean, are you telling me, Harley, that we have to wait until the end to find out if we endured? Is that what you're saying, Harley? Are you telling me that I won't know if my faith is real until I find out if I last through all the circumstances and all the trials and all the tribulations and all the challenges? Harley, if that's what you're saying, I, I, I have to say this. Um, that's not too assuring. So I just simply want to say this. Let's talk about today. Let's talk about today. Tomorrow, after all, it's all we have. I mean, tomorrow's not here. Tomorrow's not here. We're not even promised tomorrow. None of us are guaranteed that when we close our eyes tonight that we will open our eyes and it will be tomorrow morning. So here's the only question I can ask. What is your posture with God today? What's your posture with God today? Is he holding you? Because if he's holding you, then what we read in the beginning as we started this morning, if he's holding you today, there's nothing that can take you out of his hand. If he's holding you. And here's where this ties in with last week. Because the question I ask, what is your posture with God right now? And let me remind you of the posture that places you inside the hand of God. And it's a posture that you experience every day in your life, every day in your life. It's a posture of repentance. And it's a posture of repentance. And let me assure you of this. Please listen to this. Faith and repentance.
It's what keeps you chasing after Jesus. You take that away, it's not real. If you have a posture of faith and repentance, you have been safely placed in the hand of Jesus. And listen, I I am not going to give you what I grew up with, which I just, in the heart of my heart, I don't believe it's the real gospel. Because when you look at Jesus describing the soils, I was taught the parable of the seeds. And if anything with the seed, if it grows, then it's good. Now it might wither up and die. And it might walk away from Jesus, but it's still good because it said the prayer. That's not the parable that Jesus describes. He describes the parable of the soils. You see, the seed is the gospel. It just goes in. And the only gospel that Jesus says is the one that's real, the the response is the one that's that endures, right? Okay, I, I just I, I'm not going to hammer that anymore. I just want you to hear me. We are safely in the hands of Jesus if we have come to Him in faith and repentance, and it is that repentance. It's an ongoing thing. It's not something we did at camp. And we never have to revisit again in our lives because now we can just go to life back as normal as it was. No, that's not faith and repentance that's being caught up in a movement. Faith and repentance keeps us going back to Jesus. This is not about a journey of perfection. Because I promise you, I fail and I fall every week. And and listen, maybe, maybe you too have fallen and maybe you have fallen in a big way. And maybe you have fallen in such a way that it has been years and years of you falling and failing. But here's what repentance does. At some point, you're awakened and you get up, you receive that forgiveness and you, the repentance, you turn and you are chasing after Jesus again. So here's the real dirt on Jesus saying, follow me. Two questions. Here's the first. Which soil are you? 
because real faith is lasting faith. Jacob's going to put that on the screen for us. Real faith is lasting faith. I want to give you a very, very, very important note. Nowhere do we find in Scripture where we are told to go and analyze someone else's faith. We're not told to go and analyze someone else's heart. Nowhere are we told that we are to speculate about whether someone really is in the hands of God or whether they're not. We're not told to do that for someone else. We are instead commanded in Scripture. We are commanded to continue to encourage faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. Nowhere are we to decide one of them has really done that or not. All we're to do, we're, so what I'm saying, when someone falls and they, maybe they are in a season of falling, maybe it's been time, more time than you think it should have been, that's not your call. That's not my call. All we can do is encourage faith and repentance. All we can do is pray for that person. We never walk away from someone saying, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, it's superficial. That's not real. That's not our call. God has not given us that. He didn't ask us to do it. It's not really even our business. All we, our business, is to pray for them and encourage faith and repentance. The gospel makes this clear. When Jesus says, follow me, we have two questions that we need to answer. Based upon what we've just looked at, because everyone who has said that they're a Christian may not be a follower of Jesus. Not everyone who's a part of the movement and around for the movement is actually a true follower. A, a case in point, the life of Judas. Judas was with Jesus pretty much daily for three years. Judas saw all the same miracles that the other disciples saw. Jesus was around for all of that. He fellowshiped with them. He spent time with them. but he never really followed Jesus, the Son of God, who was coming to die for the sins of the world. Judas had his own idea of what the Messiah should be and what it was going to be and what it was like. So there may be a part of the movement that may not be really a genuine follower. So that first question, what kind of soil are you? Are you good dirt? Are you dirt? 
that can sustain that line. Here's kind of our bottom line statement today. Faith that fizzles before the finish was flawed from the first. Faith that fizzles before the finish was flawed from the first. See, the real question that we need to be asking is not, can I lose my salvation? That's not really the question we need to ask, even though we've just spent about 40 minutes talking about that. Because the new covenant clearly teaches us we cannot lose that salvation. The real question that needs to be at the top of our list is this. Over the long haul, what has time revealed about what kind of dirt I am? What has time revealed about what kind of dirt I am? Okay, here's the second dirty question. I told you there were two. Jesus said, follow me. The second question to this, how, how close can you get to him? How close can you get to him? And I want to promise you that's really our intent of the book that we wrote for you, 42 Days with Jesus. That's the intent. How close can you get to Jesus? And you can get that book. It's free. It's not a great book. But the process of that book, I promise it's going to help you in following Jesus. You can get that free. Just simply go to our online worship guide. If you can't figure that out, let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll help you out. But here's that question. How close can you get to Jesus? How close can you actually follow him? And those are great questions. And I love this whole dirt concept. Because in the first century, and here's where I'm ending. We're almost done. In the first century, when a rabbi had disciples following him. There was a saying, it was kind of a blessing. They would say over each other or a family member, or they would say this, they would say, may the dirt of your rabbi cover you. In other words, they're walking in a dusty, arid condition, and those little uh, flip-flops that that rabbi's wearing are kicking up a little trail of dust. And they're saying, may you be following your rabbi so closely that you are covered in his dust, that you're eating his dirt, that his dirt becomes your dirt. It's all over you. May the dust of your rabbi cover you. And so helping Jesus, how close can you get to me? And may the dust of your rabbi cover you. You want some assurance? You want that feeling of assurance? I do. How dirty are you? Are you covered by the dust of your rabbi? It's perseverance, not perfection, that reveals what kind of dirt you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. You did not give up on me. 
And God, I know that we have people here today. We have to, in a group this size, we have to. We have to have people who have struggled over whether or not they are really connected to you. And I pray this. I pray that their hearts right now are in a state of faith and repentance. And that in their hearts, they are drawn to pursue you, to stay close to you. And I pray that over the course of time, even when they fall, that that posture of faith and repentance will bring them back up forgiven and they will continue to follow your way and to turn from their way. And as they follow you, Jesus, may the dust of their rabbi cover their lives. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.